I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello and welcome back to the EPL Roundtable. I'm your host, Kevin DeVries, and as always, if you'd like to reach us at the podcast, you can do so by either tweeting us at EPL Roundtable or emailing us at EPLRoundtable at gmail.com. This is our first show back after the World Cup. It's taken us a minute, but obviously the, the holidays falling on Sundays were not very conducive uh, to finding guests. But we're finally back. Joining me today is Tad, who you can find on the EPL Index shows, uh, including a Tad Predictable. You can find him on Twitter at Tad Predicts. I'm sure he'll fill me in on <laughs> all the other things that I missed here at the end of the show. But Tad, an absolute pleasure having you on. I figure we should start off summing up 2022 before we jump into everything that's already starting to happen uh, post-World Cup. And I just wanted to start off by asking you like, what your general favorite moment of 2022 was from a footballing perspective. And then secondarily, if you have a, a favorite Liverpool moment that you wanted to share, what, what would those be? Uh, yeah, thanks for having me back onto the show, Kev. Uh, really fun time to be on this show. Um, talk about other football teams besides Liverpool, of course. Um, <laughs> the least I speak about Liverpool, the better it seems at the moment. Uh, but yeah, in terms of football in 2022, we had some interesting things that happened. I, I think for me, um, it was a toss-up between, obviously, Messi finally getting his um, much-needed World Cup and then also... Um, having the Lionesses win the Euros, which I thought, you know, after all of the hullabaloo of the men bringing, you know, football back, it's coming home and all of that, it, it took a woman to, to step in and say, okay, you guys have had enough chances. Let me show you how it's really done. Um, so it was really <laughs> fun for them to to win it. And the manner in which they won it in it was really cool as well. So, yeah, I think that has edged Messi for me because... Because I was rooting for France at the World Cup, um, so it hurt to see Mbappe do almost everything that he possibly could to win that and still end up losing it. But credit to, to Messi for finally getting it over the line. But yeah, so for me, just for that bias of I was rooting for France at the World Cup and also the Lionesses finally doing it for, for England, I'm going to go with the Lionesses winning the Euros. Yeah, for my favorite general moment, it's very against the general sentiment of everyone wanting Messi to win the World Cup because Argentina were not very cool during that match against the Netherlands um, where they were just constantly instigating and causing problems. Um, that Valt Veghorst free kick where they played it low, and I'm sure people have seen there was also basically the exact same set piece play that he pulled off um, when he was at Wolfsburg. I think that Hall said he had also been doing it in Turkey, but I, I didn't see any clips of that one. <laughs> but that moment where you're already at the end of uh, already at the end of extra time and you're already in the stoppage time of it to to take it to penalties was pretty pretty incredible. Uh, obviously, there's <laughs> very few, if any, goalkeepers you'd you'd uh, 
rather not face in a penalty shootout than uh, Emmy Martinez, who himself is uh, at best a character and worst just kind of a <laughs> douchebag. <laughs> but uh, yeah, anyway, that that one moment of joy, uh, I, I was working at the time and I was in a meeting and my wife came in and she was like, oh my God, and I had it on the TV and I was freaking out. It was just like, it was a very fun moment uh, thinking that the Netherlands were, were somehow going to uh, <laughs> find a way past Argentina, which obviously they didn't. Although I do always feel that if you're going to lose to somebody, you should hope that they win the title. Cause then you're like, Oh, well we lost to the people that won it eventually. So like that, that's somehow earned valor in some way. But anyway, that was, that was probably my, uh, my favorite general, uh, footballing moment. Although I do have to say, I'm really glad you brought up the, the, uh, women's win for England, because I do also really, really like the fact, and I know a lot of people like dunk on people that that like playing the video game FIFA series and think that that's how they think transfers work in real life and stuff like that. But them adding a fully functional uh, set of women's teams, both club football and international football, is a way to get a lot of neutrals and like pseudo football followers more aware of the women's game. And I view that as like exclusively a good thing. So I both liked Obviously, how much attention that, that the women's game was getting in the summer and then the immediate, the immediate follow-up of like an audience of millions of people all of a sudden uh, being able to play them in, in video game format as well. Um, as far as club moments go, I bet this will surprise some Spurs fans because I'm sure everybody's thinking the, the win against Arsenal towards the end of the season. Um, but uh, as people may remember, we were not the favorites to get the last Champions League spot at that point because we were still needing Arsenal to drop points again, um, which then they ultimately did against Newcastle. Uh, so if Newcastle beat us to Champions League this year, I guess that's just the price we had to pay. Um, but no, for me, it, it had to be the Norwich match, basically in its entirety. Going into that week, being so nervous, like here was Tottenham with an opportunity to screw themselves up, miss an opportunity where even just a draw against the team in the relegation zone would be enough to make the Champions League. Scoring as early as they did, Sonny getting his... Uh, share of the golden boot there towards the end, locking up the fourth place, obviously beating Arsenal to the spot. That day, there was just so much stress and tension going into it. And for it to just be relieved so immediately and profoundly, uh, I think made that probably my my favorite club moment of 2022. Uh, obviously, things not as fun for Liverpool right now, but was there a favorite moment for you last year? It's funny you say that because my favorite moment uh, for Liverpool in 2022 was actually, uh, let me get the time right here, checks notes, was the 69th minute of play between Man City and Aston Villa on the 22nd of May 2022. Yeah. When I thought, holy crap, we could actually win all four trophies. City are 2-0 down. We're winning our game comfortably. Um, So there's no worries about us winning our game. And City are 2-0 down. We've got a Champions League final coming up soon as well against a Real Madrid side who we thought we had the beating of at that time. We were walking in with you know confidence, having won two finals already, albeit not scoring a, a single goal in open play, both finals going to penalties, don't worry about that. But the fact that we everything was possible at that exact moment when Coutinho scored. And I think for me, the, mo- the fact that Coutinho scored, I thought was so poetic. Former Liverpool player that mm. we sold in order to get probably the two most key players in getting us to that next level in Van Dyke and Allison, it that moment was my favorite football moment of 
2022. Obviously, it didn't end up, you know, resulting in, 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 in a league title or the Champions League. But at that point in time, absolute bliss, absolute pandemonium. So, yeah, it, it ended badly. But in that moment, that would be my, my favorite moment of 2022. And I think it's because it was, I mean, you hope that your team can play every single game in a season and that you do end up going into that position. But it was at that moment when Coutinho scored, when was was when I actually fully started to believe we could win all four trophies. Um, the entire time I was like, yeah, it's 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 just not possible. It's it's just not gonna happen. You know, you you doubted you also don't want to say it because, you know, in case you could you yeah. curse the team or whatever. But in that moment, you lose all sense of of common sense really. Um and you just think we're gonna win the whole lot. Uh, so that was an absolutely insane moment. Um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't take it back. I, I wouldn't take it back. The possibilities then were endless. We were almost immortal, and probably going to be the most unbearable fans the world has ever seen. <laughs> yeah. Also, it shows how how like reasons he buys toys with things because things haven't been great for Liverpool the back half. So I was like, twenty twenty two wasn't great for you. You're like, we won two trophies <laughs> and had a chance at four, and that's a very good and fair point. Football moves fast. It really, it really does. And obviously we'll touch on some of that stuff uh, here a bit later. Um, now I wanted to jump into talking about the FA Cup, which obviously uh, returned with the third round this week. I was just wondering how you felt about it. Obviously with the uh, Premier League having just come back, it's not like we were coming from this like long, long dearth of football. But were you excited to see the, the world's oldest cup competition return? It's one of those weird things for me. And you know, I was discussing it with um, my wife because for her, this is a trophy that she sees for Spurs as, you know, we could go and win this. If we really put a round together, um, there's no reason why we can't challenge for it and go for it. Obviously, in context of, okay, the team's not playing well at the moment, but if we can grind out these first couple of rounds whilst the team is sorting itself out, by the time you get to maybe the business end of the season, maybe we're in good enough form to then go win it. Um, at this point in time, it's just about getting through the rounds. For me, I'm on the other side. And obviously, it's it's recency bias. It's being very spoiled as a fan. And I acknowledge that uh, I am being spoiled here. But it's the fact that because we won it last year and because of the dire situation that Liverpool's in at the moment, and I'm sure we'll we'll dive deep into it a bit later on, I I did not want us to progress in the FA Cup. We don't have the squad to handle an FA Cup deep run along with trying to get fourth in the league, which I think is the position we need to try aim for. We can't go any higher than that. I I don't think at the moment, certainly not with um, the way they're playing and the squad that we have at the moment. So for me, the FA Cup, I enjoyed all the other games though. They were really exciting. I love Burnley's um, performance on the weekend. You know, it it's, it's just from a Liverpool perspective, I didn't want us to go through because of the comp the the implications it's going to have later on in the season. We saw what our squad ended up as at the end of last season when we, you know, you you go and you play every single game that you possibly can. The likes of Salah were goosed by the by the end of the season. We were strolling over the line. We were crawling over the line. We we didn't have that that energy that zip and obviously you know. The likes of Salah did play AFCON and, and stuff like that, but we didn't have the legs. Then I look at this year's squad, 
we certainly don't have the legs to to entertain an FA Cup run. I know it's the magic of the FA Cup. I love the the the, the promise that it holds of you know a day out at Wembley, winning a trophy, fantastic. And again, I say it as a very spoiled and acknowledging that I'm a spoiled fan, trying to throw away a cup like it means nothing. But for me, I, I think the goal for Liverpool this season is top four, considering everything that's happened. And trying to win any other cup is just spreading yourself way, way too thin. Yeah, you played literally every available match last season. So <laughs> expecting yourselves to be able to pull that off two years in a row. Definitely understandable. And uh, yeah, from a Spurs perspective, it's... Uh, you just need a trophy somewhere. How long yeah. is Conte going to be here? How long is Kane going to be here? How long is Lloris going to be here? All that stuff. Just just, just win something, please. It, it's, it will truly be absurd if this entire... And it's really two separate Tottenham generations that just a couple of players were part of both of. Uh, if they, they don't win anything with some of the players that we've had, that would just be really irritating. But it is fun having the FA Cup back. Uh, Tottenham probably could have won by more, but... Um, that King goal was worth it all on its own, which was pretty incredible. And the the fact that finally we're starting to see some of the younger players get embedded, um, like Brian Heal, I think one man of the match somehow, uh, and uh, Harry Kane obviously scoring that incredible goal. You have uh, Pape Matasar, whose apparently name were under debate, uh, whether it's Pap or Pape, um, but uh, him being involved, even Jed Spence finally got minutes. We needed an athletic right wing back last summer, signed one of the most athletic ones, and then decided, nah, probably not. <laughs> Let's keep rolling Emerson Royale out there. Um, but anyway, uh, yeah, it's always fun to come back to. And it's always so fun watching all of the other matches. Like, I was, yeah. I, I had a lot to do this morning, and all I was doing was watching the end of the Leeds match um, and how crazy that was. It's just moments like that that are incredible. Also, uh, inversely, Great thanks to Manchester City for absolutely dominating Chelsea because that let me turn that match off very early uh, to, to get those things done that I missed uh, getting it caught does up in help. the early matches. It, it really does help when there's so many games being played at the same time. When a team just starts to blow away another team, yeah, you can just switch switch games. I mean, even yesterday when when Burnley started, um, you know turning on the you know the fans were, were cheering every pass yeah and it's like 20 minutes into the first half and i'm thinking right i can switch this game <laughs> and then all of a sudden bournemouth decide to wake up and then okay and maybe i can't switch it all it it's been really really entertaining round i think this this one yeah i agree and what what i think is really unique is i felt very similar during this round of the fa cup as i did during the world cup but you never get those things that close to each other. But because we had this Winter World Cup and then basically a week and a half in between the, the return of the FA Cup, that like feeling of like neutrality and just being able to enjoy the games, it's been kind of alluded to. Neither of us are particularly having a great time with our clubs right now. So just being able to like watch the game and remember how much you love it and, and like watch all of these other storylines play out with all these other clubs and watch the different play styles and stuff like that. It's just it's just really fun. And obviously, another really big part of it is watching what the crazy upsets are. Uh, from your perspective, what do you think was the biggest upset of the round? I'm I'm probably going to say Newcastle because mm. if you if you think they they haven't lost a game I mean since I think we were the last team to beat them um and it was a very fluky win they should have won that game definitely and we end up scoring in added added extra time um so even that game was a bit uh, fluky in terms of a, a loss but 
in this game, Newcastle looked to be pressing. Sheffield United, fair enough. I mean, Sheffield Wednesday, sorry. Fair enough. They get the goals on, on the break. But just the sheer drama towards the end of this game when Newcastle are really trying to break them down. You've got Chris Wood missing an absolute sitter. Um, you've got goals that were offside, but then there's no VAR in the ground. It added that extra drama. And it it is that whole thing of it's possible for anyone to turn over anyone in these fixtures because Premier League teams are juggling that thing at the moment of, okay, we've just played a couple of Premier League games close after each other. Players have come back from the World Cup as well. We need to be managing their minutes as well. Then you come up against a Sheffield Wednesday who's probably treating this as a cup final. Um, I love that dynamic of, okay, do you have the, you know, do you have the nose, do you have the desire, do you have the tactical awareness, all of that in order to get through these early rounds. And then when it comes to the business end, maybe you want to throw in a lot more of your first team players, but you need a whole squad to win an FA Cup. Um, and Newcastle, this would have been a trophy that they're targeting. I mean, I think top four will be a trophy in itself for them this season and and probably cuts down the 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 five-year plan to probably like a two- or three-year plan. If they make top four this season, I don't think they would have been expecting to. But I think a good run in the league plus an FA Cup trophy would have done them really well this season in terms of their progression. Um, so really, really surprising that they didn't go and, and beat Sheffield Wednesday. Yeah, I think that was really surprising. I also, was it Stevenage in Aston Villa? It was... Yeah, love, love. That's pretty crazy. Did you see, I think it's Aston Villa haven't won an FA Cup match since like 2016 or something like that, which just feels impossible. Um, but I'm going to go with Wrexham actually, because as some people are probably aware, Wrexham has become like this weirdly huge cultural moment in the States um, because of, of Ryan Reynolds and co. Um, owning that club and there's a documentary and they have like exclusive TV rights here in the US so people can watch them so now they're like Wrexham supporters groups and supporters oh, bars wow. in America which is which is just really odd and it seems like for the most part Wrexham fans are just like shocked and delighted with all of this insanity <laughs> um, <laughs> very much not an MK Don's kind of thing obviously not because uh, very different histories but I just imagine some people would be like oh this is all fake or like generated in some way, but it seems to have like a, a realness and an authenticity to it. And, you know, the fact that they were able to win four, three, obviously a red card for Coventry made it uh, really interesting, but yeah, I just think it's a really fascinating story. And because they're doing at the same time, basically a version of like all or nothing um, and they'll have that moment on there. And then that'll just generate even more fan interest. It's it's really fascinating to just see how how high they'll eventually be able to climb. And if it's just where they are and they just have like this weird blip in the spotlight, that's still really cool. Uh, I think it would just be even more cool if it, if it culminates in something um, a bit higher. Uh, but anyway, yeah, I think that was the one that kind of kind of caught my eye. Uh, is there a match in particular that's catching your eye for the next round where you're like, oh, that's definitely one of the ones I'm going to want to try to tune in for? I mean, obviously, you first and foremost, you have the big game in either Oxford or Arsenal uh, versus Man City. Mm. Um, I guess that's the one that jumps out. But even Wrexham versus Sheffield United, you mentioned it, just to continue the dream. Um, it, it's a really interesting fixture because Sheffield United obviously have, aren't the Sheffield United of old. Um, could Wrexham at home pull off another dream victory to continue this journey? 
Um, I'm looking at some of the other ones. Maybe Derby County versus West Ham is sort of a nostalgia. Um, you know, old older heads in the Premier League might might enjoy that one. So yeah, there's some tasty ones. Um, Preston versus Tottenham. Which Tottenham is going to turn up for that one mm. is is always is always an interesting one. The, the FA Cup could be really fun this uh, this year, I reckon. Yeah, and I think that it's also one of those ones where if you're a Premier League club that's still in it, it's time to start gearing up, right? You've yeah. seen some of the bigger clubs get knocked out already. Um, and you have to be thinking, you know, this we kind of have a chance in this one. Like it, like you said, inherently, one of Arsenal and City are going to be out. Those are the two top teams in the Premier League right now. <laughs> like, that is that is a very good sign. Uh, yes, Lily White's on Lily White's. Preston, Preston versus Tottenham, I think, is interesting <laughs> as well. I do think you're right, though. I think that's going to be really telling. Also, I, when I'm looking at some of these matchups, I'm not sure... Because you, you're, you're never sure which clubs are, like, fully giving it their best yet. I think when you see who, who plays who in the fourth round it becomes more clear which of the bigger clubs are like, this is really important to us. Or like you said before, are there clubs that are like, this is too many competitions and we kind of need to rest legs. Um, but like with West Ham's current track record, would anybody be shocked if they were overturned? I mean, Derby aren't what they were like three or four years ago where they spent every year uh, trying to get promoted. But like, I don't know. <clears throat> you just look at them and I'm not sure there's anything, any matchup where you're like, clearly this team that's higher in a table or in a higher league is definitely going to win. Like you said, Tottenham could just not show up at all. They could finally decide to start all of the younger players and then just get dunked on. Or what we do in the Carabao Cup, start all of your good players and get dunked on. Uh, so yeah, it's it's going to be an interesting one for sure. But I think you're right. I think Arsenal versus City is going to tell us a lot of things about the direction of those two club seasons and considering where they are in the Premier League. I, I think that's... That's definitely that's going to have to be top billing for sure. Um, next up, we need to talk about uh, a different thing that happened in the FA Cup, uh, which we kind of alluded to already, which was Chelsea's uh, drubbing at the hands of City. Um, in a vacuum, losing to Manchester City by multiple goals is not problematic. But it is problematic if you're a club that has won just two of their last 10 matches if you're bottom 10 in goals, shots on target, chances created, and expected goals. And that's, of course, Chelsea with Graham Potter, who everyone loved last year and were expecting him to make the move up. He decided to dedicate himself to Brighton. Then obviously what happens with, with Tuchel at Chelsea happens. So he, he goes over to Chelsea to take that job. Everyone knew it wasn't like an easy puzzle fit. Graham Potter, very much a system manager, needs to get everybody established. He has like a lot of knowledge of psychology and, and philosophy and trying to get people to, you know, be them best selves and then inherently be the best footballers they can be, all that stuff. But when you're at a club like Chelsea, you have to win. And I guess I'll, I guess I'll ask this how I'm thinking about it, which is like Chelsea aren't crazy enough to sack him already, right? <laughs> Other clubs, maybe. Um, and maybe if Abramovich is, is still in power, maybe that answers that a lot quicker. But you will find most clubs, the identity kind of sticks even once the owner leaves. So even though Abramovich isn't there, I still kind of associate Chelsea with that club that is going to act a lot quicker than other clubs do. Um, for example, Tuchel going as quickly as he did go. I, I know there were issues behind the scenes not just necessarily on the pitch, but other clubs would have probably held on to Tuchel a little bit longer than Chelsea did. So for Potter, my worry is 
with the insane amount of signings that Chelsea are making at the moment. They they looked at Nottingham Forest and were like, we're going to try and do this with more expensive players and, and see if that works. And by them doing that, I'm assuming Todd Bowley is saying, well, look at all this money I'm spending. We need to see something on the pitch. Um, regardless of how long it's going to take for everyone to bed, bed in and all of that. No, the money is being spent. We need results right now. And I worry for Potter that that's not going to be the situation. I would have liked to think that Chelsea would bring in a manager like Potter and say, similar to what Arsenal said with Arteta of, okay, don't get us relegated type thing, but we're not going to worry about the league position. We need to bring in a new identity, a new style of play or a new philosophy, a new culture at the club. You're our manager for the next three, four years sort it out and then he has that freedom to work for those four years and we see what comes out at the end of it i'm not sure that's the case anymore with him coming in do i blame potter for taking the job no um most managers in that situation probably do take a job like that because you never know if it's going to come back around um but it was sad to not get to see what that brighton team under him could have done last season in terms yeah. of chelsea's situation yeah, my, my biggest worry is there are still a lot of very big characters in that Chelsea dressing room who have played under managers with a higher reputation, Graham Potter. And the worry is always if those, if, if those players for a second think, oh, yeah, this guy is not going to get us to the promised land, they could cause us a lot of problems. And we've seen Chelsea's dressing rooms in the past cause problems for managers and get managers out um, very quickly. That's my fear for Potter. He doesn't have the name from a legacy standpoint that would hold enough weight where the club would say, oh, we're going to back you over X, Y, and Z players, whoever you know might be players that might get disrupted in that dressing room. I think the club is going to stick with the players rather than Potter. Whereas if you have a big enough name, maybe that, that name can withstand that pressure from the players and, and be able to stay a bit longer. So uh, I'm, I'm sad that the experiment seems to be ending a lot quicker than I would have hoped it would happen. But because it's Chelsea Football Club, we should have um, anticipated something like this if, if the results didn't come as quickly as maybe they would have wanted them to. Yeah, <laughs> I agree with you. I think it would be it would be way too crazy, but man, it, it is not a good look there right now. Also, I think <clears throat> what you're saying, I think everybody wanted to see what could happen with that Brighton project. Because I don't think there's any reason why they couldn't have been contending at least for a European spot. But everybody was like, oh, well, the big issue at Brighton is that they've never bought him an actual striker. Um, and that's the issue. And then he moves to Chelsea and immediately they don't have a striker. And then... Um, oh snap! I forgot his name. He was on loan at Southampton last year. Um, Broha. Yep, Armando Broha. Then he gets injured. Then they bring in uh, Dato Fofana, who is an incredible talent, but still very young. Uh, and it's like he went all the way from Brighton to Chelsea, and and the difference between the stature of those two clubs, especially financially, and he still doesn't have an actual striker to help make it work. Uh, the fact that he's already changed his system. Uh, could be viewed positive or positively or negatively, and perhaps positively because it means he isn't so nailed to like what he considers his footballing identity that that he'll be too rigid and inflexible. But having to move away from it so quickly 
probably isn't great. It's kind of what happened to Ten Hag the first few months. Maybe not months, but about the first month at United um, before he, he's kind of stopped having to play uh, the way that he'd started. So, yeah, it's it's uh, it's disappointing. I like Graham Potter as a manager. I do uh, enjoy Chelsea struggling, um, but he, he is uh, a solid enough dude and obviously was one of the managerial candidates at Tottenham before he himself ruled, ruled it out. Um, so, yeah, I, I like him as a manager. I like him even potentially as a person from afar. Obviously, I don't know him, but... Uh, yeah, it, this does not seem like a good fit. And we knew it wasn't, and I, I think you're exactly right. Either you wait long enough for the two things to align, or you just kind of admit that the owner wants to win now and you hired a manager that that's not really the style. All right, well, we'll take a quick break, and then we'll be back with club questions after this. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. It's the Kia Summer Sticker Sales Event, so give your friends something to look at. Like a B&B with an ocean view, an endless field of wildflowers, or a sunset that needs no filter. Make this a summer to share and save with a capable Kia SUV or powerful sedan. See your local Kia dealer or visit kia.com to learn more. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-334-KIA for details. Always drive safely. Sale applies to purchase of specially tagged 2024 vehicles only. Quantities are limited. Must take delivery by 7824. All right, and we are back, Dad. Obviously, we'll start off talking about Liverpool. And this is going to be kind of a, a multi-layered thing, so kind of buckle in. I wanted to start off with some of your expiring contracts because uh, three of them are in the midfield. Naby Keita, Oxlade-Chamberlain, James Milner. Um, I've already seen all the, like, you know, hyper-popular Twitter things where it's like, pick the one you want to keep and all that stuff. Uh, so <laughs> feel free to answer that if you want. But uh, what do you make of that group of, of the players potentially on the way out and uh, any of the other ones like Jordan Henderson, who who seems to have not exactly been covering himself in glory the last few months? Um, yeah, keep the one that I want is, is none an option. If it is, I pick that one. Because, mm-hmm. uh, look, James Milner shouldn't be playing this level, this regularly. Um, no offense to him and what he's done in his career. And you, you almost have to say this kind of stuff before you make a point because people tend to isolate things and, and not look at them logically, I guess. But everything that James Milner's done in his career, no one's going to ever take that away from him. Me saying that James Milner isn't a Premier League level player week in, week out, especially for the amount of minutes he's playing for Liverpool, more so for a a, a, a team that's trying to challenge for top four or top six at, the, at this current point in time for Liverpool. He's just not that caliber player. The fact that we need to rely on, on him at this point in time is a major issue. And one of the issues that I guess we'll go on to speak about um, in a minute or so. But yeah, so him first off, off the bat, thank you for your service. Um, if he wants to become a coach, um, you know, I know I think he's doing his badges at the moment uh, with the under-18s and stuff like that. Fair enough, but I need him to leave Liverpool as, in a playing capacity because what we found with Jurgen Klopp is 
unless you take that piece away from him, he's going to continue to use it. We saw it with Lalana, for example. We've seen it with James Milner. We've seen it with, you know, some people say we saw it with Divock Origi, where they were saying he was playing too many minutes. But we definitely saw it with Lovren, for example. Like, if the player's there and he's part of Klopp's trusted circle, he's going to play. And Milner's definitely one of those players. He sets the standard in training for Klopp. And I think from a philosophical standpoint, Klopp has to reward the work that Milner does in training by giving him the minutes to say, if you guys want as many minutes as James Milner, you need to train as hard as James Milner trains. I get that from a philosophy side of things and trying to get everyone to train hard, but it doesn't really benefit Liverpool from an on-pitch side of things, in my opinion. So he has to go. Uh, Naby Keita, the promise was there. The injuries, unfortunately, came as well. Um, he didn't have this level of injury record before Liverpool signed him. I think it's just one of those where you just... You just take it on the chin and say, you know, he just he just got too many injuries and we could not rely on him enough in the league. I don't understand why Liverpool didn't sell him in the summer. They had offers to sell him. He wanted to go. Well, let me say this. His representatives wanted him to leave. I think Klopp has Cater's ear um, and... I think Klopp convinced Cater that he could be useful for the squad this season. Fine, if 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 that's how Klopp felt and Cater felt strong enough to to trust Klopp in that sense, that's all well and good. But then Klopp doesn't use him that much. He, he comes off the bench for like fifteen, ten minute cameos. At it's Bergvine all can... over again. But it, for you, it's absolutely. We need him. Insane. He's so important. Okay, never mind. I'm just never gonna play you. <laughs> I'm never gonna play you, and. You look at things like the amount of minutes that Harvey Elliott has played in midfield. Harvey Elliott's not a midfielder. Klopp needs to stop that. Certainly not a central midfielder in this Liverpool system. You're just exposing a young player to unnecessary criticism, At my, at, in my opinion. You've got a ready-made player that plays that right-hand side in Naby Keita, a guy you convinced to stay when everyone else was telling him to leave. And you still don't play him there. Um, it's very, very weird for me. So Keita, he has to go. Um, I know Liverpool have tried to offer him uh, some contracts. If if Keita's representatives will have anything to say about it, I don't think he stays or, or signs a new contract. Maybe Klopp can work his magic again somehow and Keita somehow decides to stay. But I think that relationship just needs to, to end in the summer. Oxlade-Chamberlain, another one where injuries kind of got the best of him. Although... With his injuries, we saw them at Arsenal as well. So, you know, Liverpool, you have to you have to say that was self-inflicted in that maybe you were hoping that you could fix his injuries and and he would be able to perform. He had a really good first season and a half for Liverpool. Then he had that that horrible knee injury. Um and ever since then he's just never been the same. So I think for that one, again, he needs to go just on a free, it's fine. The issue with all three of those players, or let me say at least two of those three, because Milner, I don't think you were going to get much money for him, is you had an opportunity to sell Cater, but you chose to hang on to him. You had an opportunity to sell Oxlade-Chamberlain, you held on to him. These are two players that you could have easily gotten at least 50 to 60 million for the pair within the last 18, 18 months or so, maybe two years. You should have been looking to sell them, and you've kind of thrown that money away. This is not 
the system that Liverpool have built off the pitch in terms of we know they're a sell-to-buy club. If you're not selling assets, you're not going to be able to buy. It's that simple, unfortunately, for Liverpool. And with the previous re regime, with the likes of Michael Edwards backed with his, you know, the Ian Grahams, etc., the, the, the data side of things at Liverpool, these players would have been sold and would have been urged to be sold. But Klopp is getting more and more influence at Liverpool and all of a sudden these players aren't being sold when they should be sold. Firmino is another one whose contract is running out soon. Klopp is desperate for him to sign a new contract. I don't understand that. Guys, there's no reason to keep Firmino. we got to move on from these type You've of players. you like where... four replacements for him and Mane already. <laughs> Chill. Why, why? Why does he have to stay? And he's not going to be staying for, for charity. You're going to be paying him at least £180,000 a week minimum um, for him to stay and be maybe your fifth or sixth best striker. I, I don't understand that. With no resale value for a club that needs to sell players in order to buy players. It makes absolutely no sense to me, other than the loyalty that Klopp owes to, to a lot of these players and he feels he owes a lot to these players. So that's another one that I'm hoping Liverpool just shake hands with. Look, we've had great, great years. Um, good things come to an end as well. Like, just, just let the guy go. Um, and the Firmino, Klopp wanting him to stay and Klopp potentially, getting his way is similar to what happened with Henderson where Henderson still had two years on his contract when we gave him his new contract the old regime that was still when Michael Edwards were was still there did not want to offer Henderson a contract obviously Henderson went to his friends in the media he went to Klopp uh, Klopp then comes out in a press conference and says no I'm gonna I'm he's going to sign a new contract um which is crazy because Klopp at that point in time Klopp didn't have that much authority he was one of the votes in, you know, the whole um, process. He didn't have that level of autonomy to say, no, this player is signing a new contract. So when he came out and said that, and then a couple of months later, the sporting directors leaving, we knew something was not right at the club. But yeah, so I, I'm not seeing this coming to an end anytime soon. The whole club is continuing to get more power and there's loyalty now to you know Klopp's inner circle so to speak in terms of personnel in the team I think it's worrying for Liverpool because these contracts are an indication of the direction Liverpool have moved um, opposed to the way Liverpool used to operate where you're not going to let Firmino, Cater, Oxlade-Chamberlain especially those those players leave for free for nothing um Milner, fine. He's writing out his contract, his age and everything. That's fine. But yeah, those contracts that are that or those players that are leaving on a free this coming summer is a big indication of what's kind of started going wrong at Liverpool um, in recent months and possibly a couple of years now. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a very thorough breakdown of, of all of your your <laughs> departing players and, and their situations. Although, as you say, maybe not all departing if, if Klopp gets his way. But that's kind of all a mess. And you mentioned some players already being out of position. Um, in your mind, having signed Gakpo, who has a lot of positional flexibility, just kind of like in the Dutch world, he's just a good footballer. He'll play wherever he's needed. Do you think his long-term future is in midfield? Or do you think he'll end up being one of the front three? It's it's a very interesting one because in this Liverpool system, 
I don't know is <laughs> probably the honest answer because I think he certainly likes to tuck in and be involved in and around the box. But we don't really play like that at the moment because that's what Salah does. Salah is the winger that's tucked in and close to the box with Nunes. And then we sort of... it At the moment, our shape is pretty much... In, in attack, it's pretty much 4-4-2 with the, the wingers being tucked in but not as close to the box as maybe you would expect. Um, they're, they're more creative. So maybe he can play one of those roles to be one of the wide players um, being the creative outlet. But because he's still quite young, um, I'm not going to guess where Klopp's going to put him. And the reason I say that is because of another Dutch player that we had um, that left in Gini Wijnaldum, who we bought as an attacking midfielder, <laughs> ends up being... You know, he. I think he played every on the pitch for us except for goalkeeper. He played centre back against Brighton one season, <laughs> um, which is just bananas. But yeah, Gakpo, as you pointed out, he's just a good footballer. So I can see him being moulded into whatever they want him to be moulded into. The only problem for me with, uh, well, there are a, a few problems with the Gakpo signing. I guess in in that. Number one, we all know the problem area that Liverpool needed. They used the money they have available to not sign that position. If you then don't go address the position, questions need to be asked there. Um, but the thing for Gakpo with me is you've got guys like Harvey Elliott, um, Fabio Cavallo, Curtis Jones, who all don't have fixed positions at Liverpool. And I say that by including Elliott because... Liverpool constantly play him as the right-hand sided midfielder, and that's clearly not a position he's capable of playing, or at least shown he's capable of playing yet. Um, we don't know what position Curtis Jones plays really. We don't know what position Fabio Cavallo plays really. I'm worried Gakpo is going to become the fourth player that we don't really know what position they actually play, and sometimes that's to the detriment of of the player. Um, when they can't just fixate on one position, build their craft, build their their skill set, and develop from that perspective. So, I'm cautious with um, Gakpo in terms of how he progresses at Liverpool until I see a, a clear plan of, of what they're going to do with him. Really. Yeah. Well, like I said, I I assume you're going to have to play him in midfield in the short term, um, but that still leaves an extra spot at least. Uh, I know I've seen some. Uh, uh, things online of people being like, this is what Liverpool's midfield could look like. And it's Enzo Fernandez, and it's like all these other, Jude Bellingham and all these other really high profile uh, midfielders. Not that you uh, wouldn't be in the market for one of those, but is there any sense of A, how many midfielders you're looking for, and B, if any of those names feel particularly more sticky than the others? Um, do I, I, I'm not sure what Liverpool are going to do in terms of they seem to be doing weird things in, in recent months. But what I think they should be doing, maybe I should answer it that way, is you look at the the three midfield positions that they play. They've got the, the six, the defensive midfield, which is the defensive midfielder. Then on the left-hand side, they've got a controlling midfielder that kind of controls the tempo of the game. Then on the right-hand side, they've got the more advanced midfielder that links between the attack and 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 the midfield, right? So looking at the sixth position, Fabinho 
who I, I said near the beginning of the season that he's fallen off a cliff in terms of his capacity, his energy levels, his um, engine. He had a really bad injury last season, and I don't think he's recovered from it really well. And I'm still waiting for him to show that he's recovered for it, from it, and he hasn't. So that position's probably become um, a need a lot quicker than Liverpool thought. I think they thought they had maybe two, three more years of peak Fabinho playing there, but it's not looking likely in my opinion. So they need an understudy for Fabinho. He can still play the, you know, the important games and, and, but we can't be asking him to play two, three games a week. So they need an understudy for him. I don't think that position needs to be high in, you know, the 60 million odd players. You can get, you know, the likes of Amani Kone for 25, 30 million, maybe, um, Kefren Turam probably is going to cost you less than that. Like that type of young player that won't mind being on the bench, you know, more than not and can develop and learn under Fabinho as the six. So they definitely need that player. Then they need a player to play when Thiago doesn't play on that left-hand side because Thiago only gives you 20 games a season. We know that. We, we knew that when we signed him or at least should have reasonably known that when we signed him based on his his history. So when Thiago's not playing, who's going to play that role on the left-hand side? I think they need to bring someone in to, to solve that. Then on the right-hand side of the pitch, you you need a, a starting player to play there because usually Henderson plays there. He's he's fallen off a cliff as well, unfortunately for him. Um, Elliot's not a midfielder. Um, Cater, who's leaving but doesn't even play when he, when when he is available, so there's not really anyone to play that right-hand side. I think that's the position that they're probably going to spend the most money on. That's where the links to the Enzo Fernandez's, the Jude Bellingham's comes in, is to play that right-hand side. Do do I think Liverpool go and make that signing? I, I will wait to see it happen, <laughs> purely because I'm, I'm not sure Liverpool make top four. And if they don't make top four, I don't, I can see them making excuses for not spending big. Um, from Liverpool's perspective, they feel quite comfortable with the situation in that they felt comfortable since the summer. And part of the reason they didn't sign a midfielder in the summer was they had one coming next summer. So the, this summer window coming up, obviously, um, the big name that's linked there is Jude Bellingham. So Liverpool were confident enough that the player that they want to bring in is going to be coming in this coming summer. Hence, they didn't sign anyone last summer. Um, they thought they could get by this entire season without having to address it and just wait for their player to come. I'm still hesitant. I think they should have... If it is Jude Bellingham, for example, um, I think they needed to sign him last summer, even if it means him staying at Dortmund for another year, just to at least get his signature. Because the moment other clubs start sniffing around, Liverpool usually don't get involved in bidding wars. They they just back away slowly and, and just go and try and sign someone else. Enzo Fernandez, I think that's probably a more doable one in the summer for Liverpool in that Benfica seem to be quite friendly with their payment structures. Um, I, I think that's maybe one more palatable for Liverpool. The one I would go and get now, this January window, obviously Moises Caicedo, um, 
purely because he could be molded into either the the controlling left-sided midfielder or the understudy to Fabinho. So if you bring him in now, he can play that left-sided midfielder for when Thiago inevitably gets injured. I never wish for anyone to get injured, but that's just the player's record, unfortunately. And if Thiago's available, you can move him to the right-hand side and he can be that more advanced midfielder. So bringing in someone like Casado now to play the six, and then when you do make your signings in the summer, you can then obviously, he can rotate between the the six and the eight and, and, and all of that good stuff. Either him or the understudy to Fabinho needs to come in now. What I find really interesting is Liverpool trying to give the narrative to the fans that, no, we... We're not really going to sign someone now because, you know, we're looking to sign, for example, the name being used most prominently is Jude Bellingham. We're not going to sign anyone now because Jude Bellingham's coming in the summer. Well, you need three midfielders anyway. So not getting at least one of them now does not make sense to me because I do not see Liverpool signing three midfielders in the summer. That just doesn't seem practical to me from all the history that I've seen from Liverpool and the way Liverpool are, are operating at the moment. I don't see how they sign three midfielders in the summer. So my hope is that at least bring one of them now. Um, I don't care which one it is. Most likely won't be the big name one because it will be difficult to prize them from their clubs, but either the backup to Fabinho or just go and just go all out to get the guy that you want in Moises Casado um, in this window. Brighton are very, very good um, on that side of things in terms of negotiation, in terms of not being desperate to sell, in terms of what they can offer Moises Casado at the moment in terms of competitiveness um, with how they're playing in the league. And they've got a huge amount of breathing room or elasticity in what they could offer him in a new contract if they wanted to because of the the low wages he's on right now, they could easily increase his wages. That could be a pro- uh, a way to solve that problem for them. Add in a clause for him if they want to say, if X, Y, and Z come for you, we'll let you go. But for now, you can stay. Here's an extra 30, 40,000 or whatever the case may be. So, yeah, it's <laughs> I'm not sure what Liverpool are going to do. Usually, I'm confident in guessing how Liverpool are going to um, operate, but as I said, a lot of change is happening behind the scenes at Liverpool, and it's not for the better of the club, I don't mm. think, um, at the moment. So it's difficult. But those are the three positions. Um, well, it's all the three <laughs> midfield positions, really, <laughs> that Liverpool have to address. It's just in which order they address them. And if they don't bring in at least one now in January, I think it's just gross negligence because. I doubt they're signing three in the summer, which again means they're going to leave themselves short for next season. So I think that's the biggest disappointment for me is not even the fact they've thrown this season away, is they if they're potentially throwing away next season and we haven't even gotten close to that. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> that's definitely true. Also, very convenient segue into Player Watch, where I was going to talk about players that are most likely to leave. Uh, we already know a cadre of them that are going to be leaving in the summer, but do you think any of them could leave in advance or is somebody else kind of on your mind? Um, I, th- I think the, the thing is because of the amount of um, issues that Liverpool have at the moment, 
on the field and the injuries to the likes of Luis Diaz and Jota. And now Van Dijk's gotten injured as well. I don't think they're going to let anyone leave just because they're going to say we need the bodies. Would rather have the bodies than the money. And especially if the if the money coming in is is going to be about like 10, 15 minutes, what, what are you going to get for Cater with six months left on his contract or Oxlade-Chamberlain with six months left on his contract? You're not going to get much. So I think Liverpool will look at the offers and say it's not enough to justify losing a body in 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 our squad. So I don't see any of those players whose contracts are are going leaving uh, anytime soon. For me, in the summer, uh, uh, personally, I think if Liverpool don't make top four, I think either Van Dijk or Salah is going to get sold. I don't see how Liverpool make up the money to be able to rebuild for next season other than selling one of their big assets. We don't have sellable assets at the moment. If you look at the squad, the players that we could maybe sell in, in that bracket of sellable assets is maybe Joe Gomez or, or Joel Matip. But you'd imagine the money they raise is going to be used to replace them, like like for like. If you sell Joe Matip, you're going to get what? Maybe if you're lucky, 35 million. You're going to need that to bring in the center back that replaces him. The only players, as I said, a, a Salah or a Van Dyke, where you're going to lo- be looking at that 100 million mark, or if you mm. can get more, great. But at least then you can get maybe two or three down payments on players with that kind of money. I don't see how Liverpool get miss out on top four and keep those players and replenish the squad in the way that they need to. So yeah, I'm I'm, I'm being very doom and gloom. I know, but I'm. I am a very much a realist when it comes to Liverpool. And it's why, for example, at the beginning of the podcast, I said we need to get out of the FA Cup. Just focus on getting top four. We don't, we, because the ramifications of not making top four, I think are going to be a lot bigger than some Liverpool fans think they're going to be. Um, yeah. So fun times being a Liverpool fan at the moment. <laughs> Yeah. Um, For Spurs, I think the player that needs to go this January is Emerson Royale. Uh, The kind of regular booing and abuse that he gets uh, is not good from a fan perspective, but obviously not good for him from a playing perspective. Uh, He's obviously been jumped by Matt Doherty in terms of who is the first choice right wing back. Jed Spence getting a few minutes is not enough for me to think that he's actually going to be involved. So there probably still needs to be a right wing back. Depending on who you read, Tottenham are a varying level of interest in Pedro Porro, who I think makes a lot of sense for Tottenham, but not a lot of sense for Conte. So what's the future there? Um, is that not just another Jed Spence thing where you sign a player that you think is a good purchase now, is a good player that will grow into a better one, under a manager that's not that interested in using him. He can be small. He doesn't always make the best decisions. Uh, and in Conte's system, I, I'm not really sure that's what he'd be looking for. But regardless, I, I think Emerson Royal is the one that needs to go. I think the thing that's a problem that earlier I presented as a good thing is that Hill and Pape Matersar are finally getting chances. Because, like you mentioned earlier with um, Kaita, and like I referenced at the same time about Bergvine, this is exactly what happened with Steven Bergvine last January. Do people remember his goals against Leicester? Both of them after the 90th minute to give Tottenham a win, which ultimately proved to be the difference in Champions League or not. Yeah, he scored those goals, and that convinced Conte to keep him. But then on deadline day or the day before, 
we signed Kulisevsky. And then Kulisevsky started the rest of the matches for the rest of the season. And Bergvine was never more than like a bit part bench player. And then when he left, this might shock you, Tad, didn't have great things to say about his what? time at Tottenham or being tricked no. into staying at the club and stuff like that. And I think Heal and Saar, if they're going to be able to contribute meaningfully in the remainder of this year's campaign, that would be great. But my guess is Kulisevsky is about to be back from injury. Richarlison is about to be back from injury. Lucas will come back at some point. And then is Brian Heal not your fifth or sixth option at the wing? In midfield, you have Basuma and Skip and Hoybier and Sars fourth, maybe fifth. So, like, it is great that they're getting opportunities. It's great to see both of them playing pretty well. I think it, they're not going to impact the season that much. Maybe keep them for the Preston match. And then let them both leave on loan. That, that, so those are the two things. I think Emerson needs to leave, and I would like for Heal and Orsar to get to leave to, to continue to grow and develop Spence in that same category. But I'm a little worried, kind of like you were saying, maybe we're just going to hold on to everyone. And we're just like, we have so many bodies that, worst case, you know, we're able to fill these, these positional holes. But anyway, that's, that's my thoughts on Spurs there. Uh, we'll wrap up by looking ahead to our next matches. Uh, for Liverpool, you're going to be traveling to face uh, a very Graham Potterless Brighton. <laughs> it's been months now. No idea why I led into it like that. But yeah, what are you expecting to see there? I'm worried. I'm worried about this game, Kev, because Liverpool don't do well this season against well-coached, well-drilled teams. And Brighton have shown so far this season, despite Potter leaving, you would think that it it, it would have been you know a really, really shaky time for them betting in a new manager him bringing in his ideas but they seem to just be ticking on and continuing to play well so I'm I'm worried about that one they have a thing that you need to have when you're playing Liverpool at the moment which is legs in midfield because Liverpool don't have them so if you can outrun Liverpool in midfield you're going to be fine if you have runners coming from midfield you're going to be fantastic against Liverpool because we just let runners go by and you know you you mentioned for example Graham Potter never got a striker at Brighton but we've seen with Brighton this season everyone else is chipping in with the goals they don't need a strike at the moment because everyone's chipping in um maybe if they have aspirations for for going a bit higher up the league than they currently are maybe they'd bring in that that striker to get them you know the 10 odd goals they need for the second half of the season but for a game against Liverpool goals come from midfield uh, against us from midfielders running into the box and not being tracked by our midfield players so I don't see how Liverpool win that game unless Darwin and Salah are converting at a rate that we haven't seen from them uh, in recent weeks and, and just bury every single chance that we give them but even with that, I could still see us drawing the game somehow. Um, so I'm I'm not confident about that game. I'll be happy with the draw to just walk away with the draw and hope that we sign someone in time for our next Premier League game. Um, yeah, not optimistic at all. But what do you reckon for Spurs? I mean, you guys had a dominant performance midweek and then a and what would have been expected to be dominant performance on on the weekend. I thought it was dominant, just missed mm. a couple of the, the, the goals. Um, I mean, yeah, the Emerson Royale... header off the inside of the post exactly. that still didn't like, go in. Just, yeah. how, do, how do you then see yourselves shaping up in, in your next game? 
Well, the next game is the North London Derby, um, which is terrifying given their position in ours. Um, I shouldn't say that out loud. I don't think that's going to happen, though. I think this is not going to be good. I think the Crystal Palace match did not function that differently from matches before that that were deeply, deeply disappointing. Um, Sun being able to score was great, but he and a Korean doctor before the World Cup and many other have pointed out, he basically can't see the ball with his mask. Oh, wow. Um, and he was not having a good season before that. <laughs> so I don't view that as a huge potential for turnaround. Doherty over Emerson, I think, is a potential to turn things around. Todd, we were kind of talking about this before the match, I, or, or before the show. I think a lot of people are like, Tottenham will bounce back because they were better than this. And I'm... I'm not like really seeing it. There aren't really changes to the system that's encouraging it. If Kulisevsky is back, I think that would be great. Brian Heal has been playing well. Potentially, you know, that that's fine if he starts on the right. But I think we have a much better chance of winning with Kulisevsky. Um, Basum is dealing with an injury. Bentoncourt is dealing with an injury. Uh, so it's probably skipping Hoybier. That isn't overly encouraging. <laughs> obviously, the two consecutive uh, clean sheets in uh, all comps. Obviously, FA Cup and, and Premier League is nice. But the defense has really not been good enough. Last year, we were still scoring pretty freely, but we were also stopping other teams from scoring. So much so that we reached a better difference between expected goals and expected goals allowed than we ever had under Pochettino. Just think about that, how great those teams were. (laughs) That Conte was somehow doing better than that. Now, we struggle to score goals and struggle to keep goals out. The defense is very shaky. Uh, Lloris... I, I still love him. I still hold by my argument that the older he gets, the more he stays on his line and is inherently better there because he would let go on walkabouts, <laughs> but he didn't have the speed to get back anymore. Now he's learned he doesn't have that, but then you see uh, like the match against Aston Villa where it just hits him in the chest. It just bounces off of him and somebody hits it in. So uh, unless there's some kind of magic pill for the defense, I'm, I'm not confident heading into this match. I'll say we'll score because Kane scores every single time he sees anyone wearing an Arsenal kit. Uh, my assumption is that if he passes, you know, just a random park and people are playing and somebody's wearing an Arsenal shirt, he still goes on and scores against them. But uh, but anyway, yeah, I'm, I'm not expecting a win in this one. And I'm not really reading too much into, into air quotes, decent performances against Palace at Portsmouth. Against Palace, it wasn't that great of a performance until we scored and then things opened up and then kind of the floodgates opened. And against Portsmouth, we did play well, but you'd expect to. Uh, Going up against the team that's played as well this year as Arsenal, even without Gabriel Jesus, which certainly didn't seem to hinder them uh, two matches ago. I do think they drew last week, if memory serves. But yeah, not, not hoping for too much, if we're being entirely honest. But that's where we'll wrap up the show today. Tad, an absolute pleasure having you on. Why don't you tell the folks where they can find you or anything you're working on? Yeah, thanks for having me on. Um, you can find me on Twitter at Tad Predicts. Um, I will be, we will have an, a Tad Predictable show this coming week. Obviously, we do the preview of Premier League game weeks and then you do the review of Premier League game weeks. So it, it works out quite well. Um, that Twitter handle is also at a Tad Predictable uh go on to there and you should be able to see links to to the show this coming week awesome yeah absolutely be sure to check out tad and his show which are great both the person and the show itself uh i'm your host kevin DeVries. you can find me on twitter at kevroff you can find this show at epl roundtable on twitter and by searching epl roundtable and all of your podcast services but yeah tad an absolute pleasure having you on and folks at home we hope you keep listening mm-hmm.